Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Great to have you worship with us here at First Christian Church. We're very glad you're here. We are uh, smack dab in the middle of a ridiculously long series in Genesis. Um, not sure how long we're going to go, but we're only four chapters in and we've done this for quite a while. Uh, we occasionally take breaks for things, but uh, we're jumping right back into Genesis. And uh, we're talking today in Genesis 4 about the Song of Lamech, and uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit here. I uh, want to start out by, by praying. I want us to consecrate this time, not just the sermon, but, but this time of worship in a way which is about the growth of God in our lives, so that when we read the Word, when we sing, as we pray, as we gather as the body of Christ, we are uh, encouraged to become who He wants us to be. That's what we're going to talk about a lot today. There's, there's this option we have in life to, to be like Cain or to be like, as we'll see here, Seth. There's this, there's this option we're presented with to grow to become like someone who displays the glory of God or not. It's perhaps one of the most important questions we could ask ourselves. And so we'll dive into that through this story of the family of Cain and his son Lamech. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, it is our heart's desire to be shaped into people who care about what you care about. We all know what it's like to live lives where our priorities are first and yours are second, third, fourth. We've all understood and experienced and lived through that kind of life. And Lord, we're here because we want to be people who hold you up as the God and creator of the universe who holds first place. So make of us, Lord, people who engage in your word today, who find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the process of you developing us to be the people you created us to be. Father, we ask that your Spirit would be with us, that it would be your work in us, and that we would leave this place changed for having studied and engaged with the Word today. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible handy, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open to Genesis 4. We'll be going to Genesis 4, uh, verses 17 through 26 there for the rest of that passage. I want to warn you up front, uh, it's going to be a little bit until we jump into the passage, so keep your there, thumb there. I am, uh, I'm kind of going off script a little bit today uh, because I want to talk about something that continues to be uh, an issue not just for us at First Christian Church, uh, but, it's, but it's, a, it's a rubber meets road important issue for believers. And it's something that, uh, that I have seen continue to happen in the lives of people in our congregation especially. This has been coming up a lot lately. And, and I think part of why it's coming up right now is because, you know, at the beginning of a new year, it's 2012, it's a new start, it's a fresh opportunity. I don't know if you're into New Year's resolutions or not. I uh, sort of gave up my uh, ability to faithfully keep my resolutions a few years ago. But uh, that doesn't mean I didn't resolve in a new way uh, to read the Word. That's something that a lot of folks 
last couple of few weeks have talked about, uh, and I've heard people, 2012 is going to be the year. It's going to be the time. It's going to be when I finally really get into the Word like I know I need to and should. That's what a lot of people say. And, uh, and, and that's good. You need to be. Because, because I continue to see this struggle with people in their lives. They, they know they desire to live the life God has for them, to experience the kind of victory over sin that we continue to see happen in the life of people who are led by God's Spirit. People want that. They desire that. They long for it. And yet at the same time, they fight against it by not really having the Word in their life. You see, I think, I think we have a huge, huge, huge problem in our congregations in America. I think the Christian life in America is at a real tough place right now because of this very issue. And, and, I, and I'll sort of come about it a backward way. We'll get to the text in a little bit here, but it's going to take a while because, because we've got to talk about this. I'll tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'll go backwards. It'll make sense eventually. Here's what it is. We have given in to the lie. We have given in to the lie that you and I are spiritual consumers. We have bought into a false system. Very plainly, we in American churches have bought the lie that because we tithe slash tip our 2.3% on average, that you and I are owed something. We've bought that lie. Let's just say up front that it is true that the way that we approach our spiritual lives today in America is as consumers. It would be like you go to the grocery store, you look at the options, and you say, this is what I want. And I'm going to buy it with my money. We'll come back to that in a minute here. Here's how I want to talk about this. You know when you're, you know when you're at the restaurant with friends? You're at the restaurant, you're at a good restaurant, and you're excited about the food? I know that, like you guys are. It'd be like for me being at Outback Steakhouse. I know exactly what I'm getting because I'm going to get that same, uh, that safe, same filet mignon every time. I'm excited to go and I'm excited to eat. Inevitably... The discussion in a context like that, when you're with friends around the table, centers on food. It may be the excitement about the food you're about to eat, or another place. You talk about the food, you think about the food, and you, you talk about how fun it is, how fun it is to eat. That's what you talk about. Now, if something goes wrong with your order when you're at a restaurant... If something goes wrong with an order, when you're at a restaurant, you are upset. Inevitably. We've been there. We're upset. We paid for that meal to be a certain way. I had expectations about how my food was going to come. And when something doesn't come as we wanted it to come, we were upset, aren't we? You feel it rising in you. You think, I, I worked hard for that money. But what if we approached it differently? What if, what if we all understood that it's not your money and it's not your life? It never was in the first place. And so your order comes, your steak's wrong, and you know what? It's God's money anyway. 
Who cares if it was wrong? You have no reason to be upset when it's not even yours in the first place. You have no reason to be worried when all of your life and all of your money and all of your resources aren't about you anyway. What if, in fact, what if, in fact, instead of how we usually approach it, what if you walked up to the manager of that restaurant and you said, you know, I'm no French chef. I don't really know what I'm doing. But you know what? I would really like to help you do what you're doing. Manager would think, you're smoking crack, something is wrong, you are crazy. The manager would say, security, you know, something like that. That's how the manager would think about it. It would be so off the radar, so off the charts, he wouldn't even understand what is meant by a question like that. Are you, are you catching where I'm going? How sadly rare is it for people to approach their Christian life and their participation in the body like that? I don't have people walking up to me. I'll just say it out loud. I just plain don't have people walking up to me and saying, you know, this is what I've got. God's given it to me because... It's meant for something. And I want to help you produce what you're trying to produce. The problem in our churches and in our Christian life and in our families and in our personal spiritual walk with Christ is that we are so unaware of the means of production. We think it's a turnkey operation. Like, I've come, I've put my 2.3%. I don't care if you've given your 25.3%. It doesn't matter what the percentage is. We come and we think, I've, this is what I've done. This is what I brought to the table. Therefore, you feed me. It's just like eating. That's exactly how we approach church in America. It's like a consumer who eats at a restaurant. And when it doesn't come how we like it, we easily divorce the body. In our minds, in our hearts, we have divorced the body of Christ and said, you're not giving me what I'm supposed to get. You're not giving me what I'm meant to receive from you. You're not doing your job to feed me. That comes from people who don't care what the Word of God has to teach them. Because they don't want to be engaged in the process of learning it for themselves. Are you hearing me straight? Because person after person, family after family, kid after kid, struggles with whether or not they're going to become who God wants them to be because they are not engaged in the Word of God. It's not a part of their life. They don't give a hoot to read it other than one hour on a Sunday morning when somebody else feeds them. It's just like going to a restaurant. And so then we wonder why our kids graduate from their faith when they graduate from high school. Then we wonder why our kids and our families don't know how to think about what it means to be a believer in the world. We are spiritual consumers. Make no mistake, we have bought into that system. What if, like Genesis, 
where God says in 2.15, He says, I've planted you in a garden to make my glory known. What if, because of that truth, we thought about how we were planted in these seats, in this body of Christ, in the world, in our workplace, in our family, in that same kind of economy, with that same kind of way of thinking about how we're meant to produce, to grow, to become something. What if, what if Romans 12.2 was true? That we were not conformed to the pattern of the world's way of a turnkey operation where you get what you're, you're supposed to get because you're, you're here and you're present. What if it was do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but you were renewed, transformed by your mind and heart being changed and growing into the person God created you to be. The problem is we are not a part of the means of production. We are not a part of the means of production. We don't know where our food comes from. There's a great writer named Wendell Berry. You should all run and buy all his books. He's the best writer alive. Wendell Berry likens this to food. He says this, People are unsafe if they don't know where their food comes from or if too many of them at any given time don't know how to produce it. Don't miss this. Anybody can eat a potato. But we have now a larger percentage of people than ever before who don't even know how to grow a potato. Our congregations are filled with people who want me to hand them potatoes. That's not what this is for. It's not what this is about. I'm not paid to spoon-feed you. I'm paid to say, learn to feed yourself and your family. If you're not engaged in the means of production personally, as if it's your responsibility, you won't become who God wanted you to be. You won't become the person God made you and created you and resourced you to be. He gave you a brain. I get so tired of people coming and saying, it's so hard. When those same people leave this place and can quote statistic after statistic after statistic about a football team, or they can go off to work and, and, and memorize, not even know, memorize complex systems that take work and that take effort. How in the world are you supposed to learn about God if it's going to be easy? God ain't easy. And we are frittering away our responsibility for our children and for for the resources that we have, if we continue to think, you're supposed to spoon-feed me and put it on a silver platter for me, that is irresponsible and it's not going to help you grow. We are a fully consumer culture that has forgotten how to grow people. That's what Genesis is all about. The garden in which we are planted is about growing people. The most important question you may be able to ask yourself is, will I grow up into a garden where God can live? Will I grow up into a garden where God can live? 
You want to know why our kids don't want to be Christians? You want to know why they don't want to be a part of the body of Christ? It's because they don't see it lived in the lives of adults they know. Youth ministry starts when adults live stories worth telling and worth emulating. We are not calling you to an hour of enjoyment on Sunday. That's just the beginning. You can't possibly grow kids with a little pretend diet for an hour on Sunday. They've got to see it lived in your own life because you're growing. And I'm tired of hearing people say, you're the paid guy. Well, what I'm paid to do is to call you to account for how Scripture tells us, commands us, informs us, instructs us, gives us stories about what it looks like to grow into the garden He's wanting us to become. You see, it's all about culture. It's all about growth. It's all about creating a garden where God can live so that His glory is made known, both in our lives and in our world. The people of God in the Old Testament were really closely connected to the means of production. They saw how it worked. They participated in the process. They were engaged in the Word in a way which transformed their minds and hearts. They knew the Word of God. We have more access to the Word of God than the rest of history has ever possibly even fathomed. And we know less and less and less about the heart of God. We hold it. We put it in the backs of our, back seats of our cars. We have a hundred versions on our smartphones. But do we actually even read it and engage with it except for right here? Because make no mistake, if this is it, you're going to be starving. Starving. And the reason I am so passionate about this is because all week long, this week and last week, we are engaged with people who are smack dab in that place of growth or not. And tons of them are saying, you know what? I don't want that. And it, and it scares me. It saddens me. People do not want to be engaged in the Word, to be a part of the process. They want somebody else to give it to them. They want me and you to hand it to them on a silver platter. Just tell me what to do, Scott. I am. I'm telling you. Get engaged in the Word of God in a way from day to day which changes your mind and your heart. And stop, stop depending on, on professionals to do it for you. You will not grow if that's how it works. You, you won't. I've seen it fail time and time and time and time again in the body of Christ. And we are, we are, we are burdened with the accountable, responsible duty of calling us all to loving God with our hearts and our minds. And He's got it for us in a book to read. When I am sure the vast majority of us sitting in this room read everything else on the planet two to three times more than we read this. How does that compute in the life of a person who claims with their lips that God is my Lord? How is it 
that this is not the thing you read and engage your minds and hearts with from day to day. How is that possible? And yet you claim Lord as God as Lord. We read novels. We watch TV. We engage ourselves with trash from culture. And then we come to the table and we say, how come? How come this is happening in my family? We've got to do it to be engaged in the means, to be engaged in the process ourselves. This may come as a shock to no one, but God wrote this thing. And in the first few chapters of Genesis, we see his hand all over it. But I can't tell you all those things, because then 10% of you will track. Are you catching what I'm saying? Let me tell you some cool things that happened in the first few chapters of Genesis. With just the number seven, you know, God took seven days, six to create, and seventh he rested. With just the number seven, God says, heads up, don't miss this. I wrote this thing. Read it. In just the first account of creation from 1-1 to 2-3, it's that first part where at the end of it it says, God rested from His labors. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy in 2-3 because God rested on it. In that section from 1-1 to 2-3, where He blessed the seventh day, there are sevens and multiples of sevens that shape the narrative of the passage. For the Jews and the early Christians, that number seven was a number of completion and perfection. It demonstrated that God was in it. It showed that God was, was under, underneath all this process, making sure that it was happening. So it gives an order and it hints at God's supernatural presence in the book itself. In chapter 4 last week, from 1 to 17, where we looked at uh, Cain and Abel, and that uh, tragic situation. In just those verses from 1 to 17, the name Abel and the word brother occur each seven times, a total of 14, multiple of seven. And then in that, second, in that same uh, section, the name Cain occurs 14 times, multiple of seven. The numbers don't carry some hidden meaning, but they say God is in this. The word is supernatural. Another example with sevens. You remember, maybe early on, we talked about how in uh, Genesis... There's this repeated structure It says uh, the generations of. And these are the generations of. It says that 11 times throughout the book. They're called toledot. Uh, T-O-L-E-D-O-T. Impress your friends with that nerdy one. Uh, that's the Hebrew word for generations. It says these are the generations or the toledots of the heavens and the earth. That was the first one. The heavens and the earth. Adam, Noah. And so in 1-1 one, one to 2-3, in that creation account, the first Toledot, that first section, the generic name for God, Elohim, Creator God, occurs 35 times, multiple of 7. From 2-4 to the end of chapter 4, to the end of where we are today, the second Toledot, the word God, the Lord, or Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, occur a total of 35 times, multiple of 7, plus 35, 70. So that takes us to the end of our passage, verse 26, where it says, at that time, finally, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's the 70th mention 
of the Lord in Genesis. Oh, and by the way, in our passage today, Lamech is the one who kills a man and he boasts in verse 24. He says, if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then mine is seventy-sevenfold. He is, by the way, the seventh generation after Adam. He is the seventh generation. And so in this passage, even, there's this cool thing with the number seven that started way back at the very beginning of Genesis that comes to a head here and it says, this is the completion of the corruption and the degeneration of sin in these families. It has come full circle. What first was a shameful thing has now become a badge of honor in the person of Lamech, in the person of Cain in this passage. The degradation, the sin that was an offense to God and should be treated as such is in this passage celebrated as a badge of honor. So look at how this unfolds. Look at verse 17. It says this in 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Enoch is the word for city. In fact, archaeological excavations show that the oldest name that we have in all of history for the word city is Enoch. And it shows up where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers met. Cain knew his wife. That's a parallel to what we talked about last week where it said Adam knew his wife. It's a parallel, but it's really a contrast. It's saying, remember we talked about this before? Note this well now. It says, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, when Cain built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So he said, I've built a city. I've built an Enoch. He's saying, look at how awesome I am. He's saying, look at what I've done. How amazing this gathering of people is. Oh, aren't I cool. That's what he's basically saying. So, uh, Cain's wife, we don't know her name. Uh, we don't know who she was. She was probably a sister. And there's a bunch of stuff in here that I'm going to skip about that. Uh, scripture doesn't care to tell us, so we shouldn't care to ask. When he built the city, the Hebrew word there for city could mean anything from small to big. So it's just a settlement of people. The size doesn't apparently matter to Scripture. But it was a statement to God. He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Cain is trying to make a name for himself in direct defiance of the reason that God put him on the earth. Like 2.15, like we talked about, Genesis 2.15, he took the man, he planted him in the garden to keep it. In direct defiance of that command in Genesis that Cain knew well, in direct defiance, Cain made a garden, a world, a city. The problem is not that cities are bad. The problem is the purpose for which they are made. The problem is who is that city about? Cain was saying, this isn't God's world. This is my world. He had no need for God because he could do this himself. We see this later on in Genesis in the Tower of Babel, when the people say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. It doesn't mean that cities are inherently bad. It just means that cities, like lives, that are not dedicated to God, are bad in that they are directed at the wrong purposes. It means 
they said, let's build ourselves a city instead of let's build God a city. It's city as worship of self. And you may not have built any cities. (laughs) But we are really good at building our own little kingdoms, aren't we? We're really good at saying, I made that money. I'm going to do what I want to with that money. And when it doesn't show up like I mean it to, if my expectations for what's going on here are not right, I'm going to keep that. Because I made that. That's mine. No, it's not. Never was. Are you going to build like Cain? Or are you going to build like Seth, like we see? Seth built like Psalms say, the Lord must build the house. They labor in vain who build it unless the Lord guards the city. So in Cain and his family, we begin to see people living in open defiance of God's purposes. In open defiance of God's dream for us. It's not that cities are bad. In fact, in Revelation 21, we are told of the holy city of God where He Himself is the aim and goal. Listen to how one preacher says it. He says, The dream of the city which God intended for man runs throughout the whole of Scripture. Remember when we are told in Hebrews 11 that Abraham Abraham looked forward to the city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So, So from the earliest dawn of history, men were looking forward to the coming of a city. You'll find references it. Uh, to it in the Psalms and other places. But, but everywhere in Scripture, there's this contrast between the city of men built by us and for our purposes and the city of God. The kingdom of men and the kingdom of God. It's a contrast that runs throughout all of Scripture. God wants to live in the world. He created the garden for us to live in it with Him. But he, he can't live in a city made by human hands for human purposes. It doesn't work. That would be like a God who says, it's okay for you to sin. It's okay for you to be uh, living in open defiance of me like Cain. He can't do that because he's perfectly, infinitely holy beyond our best thoughts of him. And so He redeems our city building. He redeems it all. We got to the point in this passage here where Lamech in verse 23 and 24 demonstrates what it's like to wear sin as a badge of honor. He says to his wives, polygamy obviously had happened here. He didn't heed the uh, command of Genesis 2.24, which he knew. He said to his multiple wives, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. They're not daughters of God, they're wives of Lamech now. Listen to what I say. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, and then he boasts in his own power, he says, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, let mine be seventy-sevenfold. 
Cain progressed, he said, so I'm going to progress like that too. And like always, there is a hint of grace that comes in verses 25 and following. We've built our cities. We've made our kingdoms. We've selfishly gone about our lives as if we made it all in the first place. And yet God sweeps in, swoops in, and verse 25 brings redemption. He says, Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. Seth replaces Cain and Abel. Seth replaces Abel. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. As an act of faith, like we talked about the last two weeks, she says this knowing that God is working His redemption despite the sin that's taking over people's lives. She says, God has pointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. If we are not engaged in the means of growth God has made available to us. We produce culture like Cain. We become people like Lamech. We refuse the God-designed ways for us to grow into the people He made us to be. And, and, and whether or not we engage in this process will be the difference for some of us in this very room as to whether or not we sing the haughty, self-centered song of Lamech that puts the fists in the air at God and says, I can do this without you. Or we become the people of Seth who produce lives and families and work for the cause of the city of God, engaging in the process, coming and saying, how can I be a part of what God wants to do in the world? Those are the terms. question is whether or not we engage in the process. He's given us the means of production. He's made it clear. He's made it available. He's given us story after story. We've seen it in the lives of other people around us. We have it available to us here and now. The question is whether or not we will continue to engage in the process of growth God's made available to us.